Yes, Christ is our firm foundation. On Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's worship him this morning. And Christ is my firm foundation. The rock on which I stand when everything around me is shaken. Cause I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus. Cause he's never let me down. He's faithful through generations. So why would he fail now? He won't, no, he won't, he won't, no, cause he's good, he won't, come on, I still got joy in chaos, I've got peace that makes no sense, I won't
a new song and it's called gratitude and it's for those moments when God is just so overwhelming and he is just so good to me and to us and I don't know how to respond what can I give to him but I can give him my heart I can give him my actions and I can give him my praise and my song so please join me in this new song as we lift up together our song of adoration all my words will show
Good morning. Welcome to Camarillo Community Church. My name is David Hurtado. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm really welcoming you all at home. I'm preaching to an empty auditorium today, so I'm going to need you guys to really be responsive because you got to make up for this empty building for me today. But for all of you who weren't able to make the camping trip, welcome. We're glad you're with us. I know many of you will probably be watching this in the middle of the week because you don't want to miss a, a, a step in our series in 1 Samuel. Uh, and, uh, and so we just want to welcome you. Even on a Wednesday or a Thursday, we're glad that you're joining with us. The rest of us are camping right now as we speak, having a wonderful time as a family. And uh, we'll be back together next week together. I want to start today off, believe it or not, with an illustration about the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, many of you know that I am not, and it's not my team, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the Dodgers at all. In fact, they're kind of our arch enemies. But I'm going to use an illustration about the L.A. Dodgers and a positive one of that. Uh, a little shout out to my friend who I know watches at home, Ed, who I actually many years ago, uh, many decades ago, actually had a tryout to be a Dodger himself in his younger years. Ed, if you're watching, we love you and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. But apparently it was Tommy Lasorda who came up with a, a, a introducing kind of an innovative method on how to train up young talent in the Dodger organization. Uh, many of you don't know this, there's a whole minor league system in baseball. Uh, there's single A, then if you get past that, you can go to double A. And if you graduate past that, you can go to triple A. And you have to do all three of those to be able to get to the major leagues. And so you can be in the minor leagues for a long time as you navigate through this system and work yourself up the ranks. And Tommy Lasorda had come up with a new and innovative way of training his young talent. He would get his star rookies, the ones that had an enormous amount of potential and talent, the ones that you had assigned to a, an extremely high signing bonus just to get them to be a part of your farm system, the ones that just in their minds thought they were the stuff. I mean, in their own minds, they were just second to none. And, uh, and, and no matter where you were in this system, you had, whether you were extreme potential or somebody had to work your way, everybody has to go through the system, A, double A, triple A, Ball, And so uh, he would take his extremely talented uh, young talent and he would bring them up to the major leagues early. And what he was doing was you can imagine these star pitchers who, who there hasn't been a person they couldn't strike out or these star hitters who've never seen a pitch that they can't hit. He would bring them up early because he wanted to serve them some humble pie. They'd get up to the major leagues, maybe just out of high school or just out of college thinking that they were the stuff. And, and then they'd throw pitches and they'd get shellacked all over the place and give up so many different types of run, runs. They, they were phenoms in their own mind, but they'd never been in the professional leagues. Or they get batters to come up and, and these young guys think that there isn't a pitch they couldn't hit. And all of a sudden they're striking out left and right and they, don't, they look like uh, little leaguers in comparison to the major leaguers themselves. Well, Tommy Lasorda did this because he wanted to serve them some humble pie, knowing that when they went back to the minor leagues in A ball, double A ball, and triple A ball, that they would be that much more ready to receive the coaching that was down there. Until then, they're just going to think everything and, and not listen to anything that was being said. But if he can serve them some humble pie, they'll go down, they'll be much more ready to, to listen and learn, and they can achieve the potential that he thought and knew that they had. They would be ready to be developed. What Tommy Slayer knew was that the humble disposition was and is the best disposition to receive coaching. 
And Tom Lee Sawyer knew this so much so that he was trying to get his young talent to the best possible position to succeed. And by our time we're done this morning, I think we're gonna see something similar. We're gonna come to a similar conclusion, namely that humility is the best path spiritually as well. How does God come alongside us like a coach and and what does he help us see? All of us have leadership skills that the Lord has gifted us with. How can we remain humble within them? How do we not let the entrepreneurial spirit inside of us overwhelm our heads and our ego? Sometimes success can go before whatever we touch with our hands. Well, who should get the credit for that? And what is the key to shrinking our heads? For that, we're gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter 11. I hope you'll turn there with me. Uh, If you have a bound Bible or a phone or if you're on your computer right now, you can open up an extra window. That would be awesome. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're looking at verses one through 15. We'll go through the entire chapter of chapter 11 today. And the overarching question is, how does God aid us in our preparation for leadership? How does God aid us in our preparation for leadership. Now, some might be saying, I'm not a leader. Yes, of course you're a leader. I don't care what you do, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a business owner, whether you're in insurance sales, or, or, or even if you say, I'm just a mother, you are a leader leading your children. Everybody has facets of their life where they're leading, and the question is, how does God aid us in our preparation for leadership? The first thing we're gonna see is that he gives us eyes to see past the impossible. Uh, God's the one who gives us eyes to see. We can see past the impossible. What we're gonna see in our passage is how God gives Saul eyes to see past something where everyone else would believe is impossible. We're gonna look at verses one through eight together and we'll see how exactly this happens. Why don't you watch as I read, it says this. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that you gouge out your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout the entirety of the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one who will save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now, Behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of the Lord, or Spirit of God, rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and anger, his anger was greatly kindled. Then he took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of his messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. What a beautiful line. Uh, The divided 12 tribes of Israel would come united, and how would that be described? As if having the mind of one man is the idea, great unity there. And when he mustered them at Bizek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. We'll stop right there. How does God aid us in preparation for leadership? Well, he gives us eyes to see past the impossible. Uh, What everybody else would see is impossible. For some reason, Saul views as very Possible. What's happening here is there's a weaker tribe, uh, a weaker town within a weaker tribe that's being attacked by the Ammonites. And the idea is uh, it's such a, a pull, uh, you know, s- such a, a, a rigged situation that they'd rather offer up their surrender than be obliterated. 
Um, we, can be, we can surrender or be conquered. Uh, maybe we can offer up surrender. Hey, Nabash or Nabash, whatever your name is, uh, we will offer ourselves to you. You can use us and tax us instead of killing us. So we'd like to surrender ourselves. The problem is Nabash's terms of surrender are quite extreme, uh, to say the least. So yeah, I'll let you surrender, but you're all gonna have to pluck out your right eyes. In fact, I'm gonna pluck out all of your right eyes. That's the only terms of surrender that I will allow. Now this was done because he wanted to humiliate not only Israel, but the God of Israel. Uh, A God who could not stop such an atrocious activity must not be a very powerful God. And so therefore, I want your God to be humiliated. I want you to be humiliated. And it was also very strategic because if I allow you to be a people that I tax, I would never want you to be able to attack me. And so if you all don't have right eyes, you won't be able to hold a bow and arrow right or be able to aim it right. You won't be able to hold a shield and fight. Uh, This will enable you or discipline disable you from ever attacking back. And so it's both uh, a means of humiliation for their God, their people, and a means to making sure that they would never be able to attack back. While this is horrifying to them, it's still a better uh, solution than being completely obliterated. And so they say, hey, Nabash, why don't you give us seven days? Seven days, we'll go around. If nobody else will rescue us, then we'll actually give ourselves to you and we'll, we'll, we'll come to grips with the terms of your uh, suggested um, um, surrender. And so they do that. Now, the fact that Nabash allows this to happen kind of tells you a little bit of his own uh, um, uh, mental psyche. He must think that he's being so overconfident that there's no way they can win this battle. Go ahead, go ahead and ask anybody you'd like. It's not matter. Nobody's gonna be able to take me out. Now, maybe he just knows he's more powerful. Maybe he, he feels like Israel will never band together for battle in one, for one of the weaker tribes. Maybe he just doesn't feel like it's, it's possible. And the truth is, it's better if they come and they surrender. We don't have to fight. We don't lose troops. And it's more humiliating for them. Are you really serious? Like you were so scared of us, you decided to give over your right eyes rather than fight us. And so there's a lot going on there. There are some pieces of history that also kind of uh, really impact the understanding of this passage. And I wanna kind of go through those because I think it's really important. Uh, We know because of historical record outside of the Bible, like we believe the Bible to be 100% the word of God and there's no question But even outside of the Bible, when we cross-reference Josephus and some other ancient documents, we know that that Nabash was an actual guy. And and historically speaking, this was his MO. When he conquered people, he took out their right eyes. We see that. Josephus wrote about it. And so this is definitely not just a, just like a, 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 you know, a, a, a threat to get you to do what I want you to do. This is his MO. This is what he does. And everybody knew that's what he does. You could go into a neighborhood and depending on how people look, you can say, well, I guess Nabash the Ammonite had been here because of what the atrocious activities he had done. So instead of ratifying this agreement of surrender uh, with a sacrifice, which is what normally would be done, okay, we agree to surrender to you, let's uh, sacrifice an animal in the name of the blood of the animal, we make this commitment to you, you now rule over us. Instead of doing that and sacrificing an animal, and he says, no, I want your eyes. That's what I want you to sacrifice, not an animal to ratify this agreement. I want your very right eyes. Now, there's other things going on historically as well that also kind of bring more flavor and understanding to this passage. The second one is that there was a civil war that happened in Judges chapter 19 through 21. I've referenced this before in a couple weeks, the last couple weeks, and you might want to go back and read that portion of scripture because in that battle, the 12 tribes of Israel are divided. Actually, they're divided into two groups. There's the 11 tribes of Israel and one tribe, Benjamin, that had done this atrocious sinful activity, so much so that they gathered all the rest of the tribes in a civil war against that one tribe. Do you know what that one tribe was? That one tribe was Benjamin. 
which if you remember is why Saul thinks there's no way I can be the king. I'm of the, the lame tribe, the tribe that did stuff wrong, the tribe that was almost completely obliterated by the rest of the tribes. There's no way I'm king. There's no way that it could be. Well, that's one of the reasons because there was this big civil war and all but 600 men were obliterated. Check it out in Genesis, I'm sorry, Judges chapters 19 through 21. All but 600 men were um, were obliterated. 600 men were left alive. Well, the leaders of Israel got together and said, well, what do we do here? We can allow the tribe of Benjamin to go extinct. Uh, everybody else is gone. Or we can allow the tribe of Benjamin to move forward. Well, here's what they came up with in Judges 19 through 21. They said, whatever towns did not send any warriors to come fight this battle against Benjamin, we're gonna take their women and we're gonna give their women to whatever is remaining of the tribe of Benjamin, and that will be their legacy moving forward. So as a punishment to the towns that didn't send anybody to fight, they took their women, gave them to whoever was left in the tribe of Benjamin, and that's how Benjamin moved forward. Here's the interesting thing. When you go to uh, Judges 19 through 21, one of the towns listed that sent nobody to fight in this battle was guess who? Gabesh, Jabesh Gilead. They sent no one to fight in the battle. So you can be thinking to yourself, okay, here's Israel. We came together to fight against Benjamin once. There was people in this town that didn't come fight. And now Saul is telling us we need to fight for them. Can you imagine the, 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 the nature of that sentiment in the mind of the rest of Israel? Are they gonna be that excited about fighting for a town that wouldn't fight for the righteousness of God? Add to that that it's very possible that Saul himself, because he's a Benjaminite, was a descendant of these folks. You can very possibly see how Israel's not that motivated to get involved. Let's just let them die. Why not? And at the time, Israel was very kind of uh, uh, fractured into different uh, places. They were not unified. So this, this story is actually rather compelling that Saul's able to get everybody unified together. Well, here's a story about how these people are coming under attack and their right eyes are in jeopardy. Uh, and uh, the Spirit of God falls on Saul so that he has a righteous anger. As an interesting side note, uh, Ephesians says, if you're ang in your anger, do not sin. Did you know that it's, so, it's possible to be angry and not sin? That anger in and of itself isn't necessarily sinful. What you do with that anger can be sinful. And what that anger is based on can also be sinful. But anger in and of itself is an emotion from God. Uh, uh, you should be angry when somebody does something that is so wrong and immoral and hurts another person. Uh, you should feel an, a, a, a discontentedness in your heart that you could even call anger in that. That is fighting for the righteousness of God. And so here the Spirit of God falls on Saul so that he has a righteous anger and then Saul goes into action. Now I wanna emphasize here that we're so early in the stage of Saul's kingdom. He just, he just got you know, uh, told by Samuel he's gonna be king and, and then he got inaugurated, so to speak. And, 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 but it's so early that, that the Saul doesn't have a kingdom. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have it's like a taxation system. There's no government yet. There's this whole system hasn't been brought up yet. And so Saul literally has gone back to work in the fields. And it says he comes behind the oxen. And behold, verse five, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. He went back to do farming work. Working the fields, that's how infantile this whole kingdom, kingship thing is. He had a band of people, according to the last chapter, that liked him as king, but he had no army. There was no palace yet. There was no taxation structure yet to support the new infrastructure of this new kingdom. There was no system of government yet. None of this stuff is around. It's just Saul being there, enraged by the Spirit of God coming on him, having a godly anger towards some atrocious things that were about to happen. So he cuts up some oxen, sends it to all the tribes of Israel, which basically says to them, you either join us in this godly derived battle or you're gonna become like this oxen. 
bloodied and messed up. Or uh, we will do this to your oxen. The idea was you can choose which one. You want to jump on board with what's right or do you want to be bloodied? And from that illustration, it motivates 300,000 from the northern tribe and 30,000 from the southern tribe, 300,000 from northern Israel, 30,000 from Judah to come and fight. Now, there is some deep irony in this again that I've got to point out to you because it's just so ironic. Um, And that is that in Judges chapters 19 and 21, there was a Levite who took his concubine, chopped her up, and sent her to all the pieces of her to all the tribes of Israel to come and fight against Benjamin. The same exact thing happened in Judges 19 through 21. He was saying, you need to fight for what's right. The tribe of Benjamin has done what's wrong, and so therefore we need to fight for righteousness And they all get galvanized together, and they do all but obliterate the tribe of Benjamin. The irony here is that now Saul is doing the same thing, but this time to defend the tribe of Benjamin and defend a town, Gabesh Gilead, that didn't even participate in that original battle. It's a lot of irony going on here. He comes now to defend the descendants of Benjamin. He himself is a byproduct of the line of Benjamin. There's all kinds of irony in this. He's saying you're either for us or against us. We're either one or we're not. And they all decide to go together. Now, because of everything I just said, I would classify this as an impossible task. I mean, just impossible. First of all, the guy who has the army against them feels so confident he's gonna win that he says, yeah, go ahead, tell anyone you want. <laughs> See if you can get some people to fight us. That'd be kind of funny, right? Uh, the terms are horribly against them. Like, you know, either you beat us or you get your eyes taken out. And then you have all this background information about this group, this town that didn't even fight for righteousness way back when, and now we're supposed to fight for them? No way. How is this gonna happen? Then you have Saul, who is like, quote, unquote, the king, but there's still some people who are kind of like, I don't know about him. And he's the one who's supposed to galvanize this entire body without a government, without a structure, without taxation, without any money. This is like an impossible task. And yet Saul sees potential in this event for victory. And it can only be a God-given sight that he could see past the impossible. Because all the natural factors or indicators were against him. That's why I say, how does God aid us in our preparation for leadership? Well, number one, he gives us eyes to see past the impossible. Some of you have great minds and you've been able to conquer and accomplish a lot of things in life, but don't forget that it's God who gave you that mind. He's the one who gets you past the other hurdles that most people don't get past. Well, how does God aid us in our preparation for leadership? Number one, he gives us eyes to see past the impossible. Number two, he gives us eyes to see past our pride. He gives us eyes to see past our pride. Uh, Very easily, when we have one victory in life, we can start thinking that we're something and our head can grow and the ego can get bigger and out of control. And yet here, Saul doesn't grow past his pride. He gives us eyes to see past our pride. I want you to see that in verses nine through 15. It says this, and they said to the messengers who had come, thus Shall you say to the men of Gebesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you, have, you, have, you shall have had salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Gebesh, or Jebesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jebesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves to you, and you may do whatever it seems good to you. They're talking about going to Nahash, and they do some ploying there, lying to him. And the next day, Saul put people in three companies And they came in the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heart of the day, probably midday, 12 p.m., something like that. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So they end up obliterating the Ammonites. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, "Shall, shall, shall Saul reign over us? 
Bring the man that we may put them to death. Tunes are changing all of a sudden. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death on this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Just remember that. You could highlight that line, underline that, circle that. Not a man shall be put to death on this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He gives credit to God. And then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. We'll stop right there. How does God aid us in our preparation for leadership? Well, he gives us eyes to see past our pride. You, you can have some successes in life, and if you're not careful, you can start to think that you're something, and your, your head can grow bigger and bigger, and the ego, and we've all seen those type of people, and it's a horrifying idea to think that that could happen to me. And here, God gives Saul the ability to see past his pride. First of all, Saul's strategy works. He splits them up into three companies. They do a surprise attack. Uh, uh, you know, uh, sending them, uh, you know, this false message of, hey, tomorrow we'll surrender. Uh, but instead of surrendering, they don't. They attack from three different sides. Kind of a, uh, a common strategy in war, attack from three different sides at the same time. Make it a surprise attack and you can win. Surely enough, you, you gotta believe, then say it in the text, but the Ammonites are thinking, great, we won. Look, we won and we didn't have to fight. They're drinking, they're having a blast at night. And here comes the attack from Israel and Saul. The attack came from about 2 a.m. till 6 a.m. That would be the last watch of the night. 2 to 6 a.m. is the last watch of the night. The Bible tells us that attack went on until midday, till the sun was hot. Uh, in ancient times, they broke up the night into three different watches. And it makes sense to me. They were watching for attacks, right? So the first watch, second watch, third watch, which watch are you on type of thing. And on the morning watch, they attacked, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. They slaughter the Ammonites and completely obliterate them, the ones who are trying to uh, take the task to Israel. And before you go feeling sorry, now this is really interesting because a lot of people read the Old Testament and go, man, that feels really bad. That doesn't feel good that God caused people to, to go and kill, kill a whole segment of people. And, and, and I, I just would challenge you to dive a little deeper when you feel those things. Remember who these people were. Nahash just said, I'll let you surrender. Your choice is to give me your right eyes or you can die. Which one do you want? That's horrible. And so those are the people that get taken out in the scriptures. Be careful that you don't just assume that everybody who's being taken out was living righteously or something. Most of the time, it's somebody who had done something against the Lord our God. And so um, they are taken out. Uh, the, 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 histor the historical record beside the Bible, remember Josephus and other writings say that this is Nahash's MO. He goes out and he takes eyes out of people when he conquers them. And so God instead saves them through Saul and, uh, and the reverse happens. Um, the Ammonites are destroyed, not completely, but uh, in this battle they are destroyed. In response, Israel sets out to kill the naysayers. Now, all of a sudden, Saul has this victory. Everybody's like, wait, I remember there was a people in chapter 10, and they were like, I'm not sure I'm gonna follow this guy. I don't like this king. And now they're going, well, who said that? Bring him up here and let's kill them. And Saul appropriately says, no, 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 no. Nobody's gonna die today. And in that act, we see the humility of Saul, that his head has not grown too big, that his ego has been held in check. In fact, this is the second time he could have killed them. The first time when he became king and, and God said this is, uh, validate him miraculously. We saw that in chapter 10. And, and there was these naysayers. He just pretends like he didn't hear it. And then here again, now the people are saying, let's go kill those guys who said that. And he goes, no, 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 no. No one's gonna die today. Um, this is gonna be a day that we remember God and not make it about me. If we kill them, then it's about me. This was the day that God brought salvation to Israel and we want it to remain about him. Again, great security, great confidence, great humility, great forgiveness as a leader. 
Samuel, on the other hand, uses an opportunity for a great validation. Great, you have this victory now. Now let's get everybody together. Let's install Saul, let's install Saul as king once again. Now, this is kind of like almost a redundant piece. We're like, we heard this last week. They did all that already. They were at Mizpah and they did all that. And why are they doing it again? And some had said, you know, maybe some think of it this way, that there was a spiritual installation of him as king and there was a governmental or political installation of him as king. At Mizpah, that was the governmental, uh, political installation. And now at Gilgal, that's more of a spiritual installation of him as king. Some call it a reaffirmation. Some see it as a three-step process. He was, he was designated and then he was confirmed and then he's finally inaugurated. And all those are possibilities. I think I would probably um, come to a different conclusion like this. In fact, I'll give you a quick illustration of how I see it. Uh, when I, 25 years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church, and, uh, and the, the, the church was a smaller church, and I was, it was right next to my seminary. I had come from this big church, but uh, in this smaller church while I was going through seminary, and, and they didn't understand how to do outreach very well. Uh, they would do outreaches where they would, you know, get half the number of kids that would come on a regular night, which I would go, then why do the outreach? It's not, obviously not working. Um, you know, uh, you should have more kids because your kids should be inviting other kids to come and hopefully hear the gospel and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here I was used to doing outreaches where we have 500 students and we'd preach the gospel. And I come to this small church and, and their experience has been that whenever we do an outreach, no one shows up, not even the regulars show up. So we'd started doing some promotional things and different things like that, and, and uh, we had about 20 kids in our youth ministry. Well, that night that we did that outreach, we had 80 kids show up, 60 of the kids that we had never met before, and we preached the gospel. In fact, I let my evangelist staff person preach the gospel because I wanted him to have an opportunity to preach the gospel to so many kids that they had never seen in their youth ministry experience. A young adult gal came up to me afterwards that night, almost in tears. And she said, I'm so sorry, David. I go, sorry for what? This is a great night. She goes, I'm so sorry. I didn't believe in you, and I didn't believe in this. I never thought it was gonna work, and I just came begrudgingly in my mind thinking, here we are again doing another night when nobody's gonna show up. That day, I became someone that she would follow. That day, and with that, I would say, divine validation, God showed up in our midst, I became a leader that she would follow. The interesting thing is I already had the leadership title. I was already the leader. The church was paying me to be there. But that whole idea that now I'm ready to follow you is a little different. What happened to Saul after this event is that day, the nation of Israel said, okay, we'll follow him. We'll follow him. After this amazing day, Israel said, we can see ourselves following him. And the amazing thing is that he keeps his head about himself. He doesn't let his ego grow too big. He doesn't go, oh, I'm the big guy, I'm the big cheese now with the big pants, and, and if you're against me, I'm squashing you. He doesn't do that. He does the opposite. He stays humble, keeps his head shrunk, acknowledges God. God's the one who showed up. I didn't do anything. He gives God the credit versus taking the credit himself. Why? Because greatness and leadership always begins and ends with humility. Greatness and leadership always begins and ends with humility. I wish you'd write that down and maybe even memorize it. Greatness, if you want to be a great leader, it always begins and ends with humility. And in this regard, Saul begins well. He remained humble. He gave credit to God for the victory. He could have taken credit for himself. In fact, he's the one who organized, motivated, and led Israel through the effort. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because the Spirit of God came on him and filled him with the ability. Don't forget verse six in this whole thing. The Spirit of God is the one that gave him that righteous indignation over what was going on. He refused to kill those who opposed him. He declares it a day of praise to God rather than vindication and validation for himself. Unfortunately, later on in the narrative, we see that uh, something happens and Saul diverts from this heart mindset. He seems to forget that, and he suffers the consequences, as we will see as we continue going in the book of 1 Samuel. That's why we need to remember that greatness and leadership always begins and ends with humility. You know, it's interesting. 
Uh, a lot of things have been said in the name of humility over the years. Um, one of the important factors to hone in on is that humble people can still be confident. Did you know that? You can remain humble and yet be confident in who's God made you to be, in the gifts that God's given you. You can still be confident and yet be humble. It was James, uh, John Riskin who said, I believe the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I don't mean by I don't mean by humility, doubt of his own power or hesitation in speaking on his, his opinion, but a really great, but really great men have a feeling that greatness is not in them, but through them, that they could not do or be anything else than God made them to be. Andrew Murray says, a humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praise while he's forgotten because he received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself, who sought not his own honor. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on the heart of compassion, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, and humility. M.R. D. Hahn used to say, humility is something we should constantly pray for and yet never thank God that we have because when you do that, you've crossed over. Henry Augustus Rowland, a professor of physics at John Hopkins University, was once called an expert witness at a trial. During cross-examination, a lawyer demanded, what are your qualifications as an expert witness in this case? Normally modest and retiring professor replied quietly, I am the greatest living expert on the subject under discussion. Later, a friend, well acquainted with Roland's disposition, expressed surprise at the professor's uncharacteristic answer. And Roland answered, well, what did you expect me to do? I was under oath. You can still be confident in yourself and yet be humble at the same time. It's possible to do both. Humility doesn't mean that you have to have a depressed view of yourself. It just means that you know that life's not all about you. But you can be confident in the skills that God has given you. William Temple said, humility does not mean thinking less of yourself uh, less of yourself than other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself one way or another. I said, not, life's not all about me. That's all it means. God's given me skills. I'm using them for his glory. But it's not all about me. It's about him. Finally, at a reception honoring musician Sir Robert Mayer, on his 100th birthday, elderly British socialite, Lady Diana Cooper, fell into conversation with a friendly woman who seemed to know her well. Lady Diana's failing sight prevented her from recognizing her fellow guest until she peered more closely at the magnificent diamonds and realized she was talking to Queen Elizabeth. Overcome with embarrassment, Lady Diana Courtesied and stammered, ma'am, oh, oh ma'am, uh, I'm so sorry, ma'am, I didn't recognize you without your crown. To which the queen replied, it was so much Sir Robert's evening, I decided to leave it behind. It is possible to remain confident in who God made you to be. And at the same time, recognize that this isn't all about you. Greatness in leadership always begins and ends with humility. In the words of the late, great D.L. Moody, be humble or you'll stumble. God is the one who helps us see past what is impossible and God is the one who helps us see past our pride and like any good coach, he would tell you, remain humble, stay humble. I have some questions that I'd like to ask you as you apply this, because anybody's gonna say, of course, yeah, we gotta be humble, I can't be prideful. It's so easy to say something like that, but to believe it and to espouse it, sometimes we don't make the connection from the statement to the instance in life where it is required or needed. So let me just ask you some questions. 
Can you ever admit when you're wrong? Not just internally, but verbally. Like to the person that you've wronged. Can you apologize? And maybe a better question is, do you apologize? Sometimes we can answer, yeah, I can apologize. Well, do you ever do it? It takes a humble person who is able to apologize. The words, I'm sorry, come easily off your lips and your mouth. Do you chafe at someone else's success or can you celebrate it? Do you hold grudges or forgive those even if they never asked for forgiveness? See both of those things in this passage. Saul says, I'm not gonna mind what they're saying even though they haven't asked for forgiveness. I'm gonna spare their lives. That's the high calling of humility. That's the calling that the scriptures call us to. And if you're like me, that's not easy. So let's pray and ask that God will give us those qualities. Let's pray together. Father, you are the God who allows us to see past the impossible. And I know um, there are those with an entrepreneurial spirit that go, I can just see it. I can just see it. And for some reason, when my hands touch it, it works. And yet sometimes we fail to recognize that that's you and your favor in our lives. Help us to acknowledge you even in our very abilities. And you are the God that helps us see past our pride. And boy, do we need your help. For like Saul, we can have good days where we acknowledge that you're everything and everything we have is yours and you've given us all that we have and we give you all the credit. And then we have bad days like in chapter 15 where we think we're something and our heads grow and our egos grow and then you cut us off at the knees. For you are jealous for your glory and you're the only being on earth who's allowed to be jealous without sin. Help us acknowledge you, help our minds and our egos and our heads stay small. Help us forgive like you forgive Help us be a living representation of Christ himself. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Thank you, Pastor David, for that challenging message about humility. Um, you know, today is uh, Memorial Day weekend this weekend. And this is a day that's been set aside to remember those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice while in the service of their country in order to preserve our freedom. You know, our freedom that we enjoy is not free. It's, there's been people who've paid the ultimate price for that by giving up their very life in order to preserve it. And I know that maybe some of you are, who are watching this um, have people in your family who you've lost um, in the service for their country. Maybe they um, were in the Vietnam War, in the Korean War, the Gulf War, any number of other ways. I know that's true for my family. I'm, I'm named after my mom's brother. His name was Kenny Combs. That's where I get my name. Um, and I wear that name proudly. You know, sometimes people try to call me Ken or Kenneth. And I go, no, it's Kenny. And I'm okay with that because that was what my uncle went by. And that was good enough for him. And that's good enough for me. So um, today, we just want to say maybe you're uh, remembering a loved one or a friend or a family. Maybe you fought in war and lost buddies that you served with. Uh, we just want to say uh, that we are understand, we're grateful for the sacrifice, we're so thankful, and as a church, we appreciate the sacrifices made on our behalf so we can enjoy our freedom and worship together here in this church. All right? We're going to shift to receiving our offering. It's one of the ways we worship God. There's three ways to participate. You can give on our uh, website. Go to camcc.net. Click give at the top of the page. You can text the amount you'd like to donate to 84321. Or uh, you can mail in your offering to the church um, office.
My name is Megan Terryberry, and I'm one of the worship leaders here at Camp CC. Thank you, Pastor A, for that message. Something that I got out of it was that God um, can use humility to show us what we can do in the impossible, and he can help us get past our pride. And that's really important in leadership. And like Pastor Dave said, we are all leaders in our circle, whether you're a mother or a father at work with your social group, um, we all have the opportunity for God to move through us. A reminder is that this upcoming week is youth promotion. And so all of our little preschoolers will be moving up to kindergarten. All of our third graders will be going to our fourth and fifth grade group. Our fifth graders are going on to middle school. Our eighth graders are gonna be heading into high school group. And then our seniors, we have a young adult group here on Tuesdays at church that we'd love to see you at. And again, we hope that you guys enjoy your Memorial, um, Memorial Day and we wish that you'd be praying for those that you can invite next Sunday to join us. Have a great week.